All right, welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour. I'm Adam Dietrich. The Ridgeway Security Hour is brought to you by the Graduate School for Public International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh and the Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies. Uh, joining me today is Mike Poznanski, who is a uh, professor here at Gispia that focuses on covert action and political science, and Julia Santucci, also a professor here who has a background working in the intelligence community, the White House, and the State Department. Thank you guys for both joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I guess, you know, what starts a new decade off? Like, oh, almost going back into another war with the Middle East. <laughs> so we, we are discussing the events that occurred on January 3rd with the killing of General Suleiman, the, of the, the Quds forces, and the uh, Islamic Republican Guard of Iran. Uh, we're here to kind of go through the various implications, uh, the background of, of what occurred, the, the legal area in this happened, and just our, our thoughts on, on the situation and where that leaves us today. Uh, so starting with this is going to be uh, Julia, and she's going to discuss the, the background and, and Iran's interest in the region. Great, yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. And um, you're right, this is definitely an interesting way to kick off the decade for all of us. Uh, I think, I mean, it's important, and I don't want to spend too much time on the history, but I think it's really important when we think about Iran and U.S.-Iran relations to, um, to dig a little bit into that history. And there's really two years that happened well before any of us in this room were born uh, that are, that are pivotal, pivotal in U.S.-Iran relations. And the first is 1953. And in 1953, the U.S. government and the British government um, worked to overthrow the democratically elected prime minister of Iran through a CIA-sponsored coup and reinstall the Shah of Iran. Um, and the Shah uh, went on to become really one of our closest allies in the region, if not in the world. He was strongly supported by the United States by um, successive administrations from Dwight D. Eisenhower through Jimmy Carter. And then that brings us to the second important year to keep in mind, which is 1979 and the Islamic Revolution. And the Islamic Revolution overthrew the Shah. Um, and, and the revolution started out really as a widespread movement of religious figures, students, leftists, other activists working to, um, to free their country from the Shah's regime. Um, but following his exile, a violent internal struggle commenced. Uh, with the clerics coming out on top. And that's how we end up with the Iranian regime that we know today. Uh, but the, the movement, because the Shah had been so closely affiliated with the West, in particular with the United States, uh, the, the revolution also then took on an anti-American um, an anti-American sentiment that continues um, in Iran and certainly with the Iranian regime until today. And so the United States and Iran have not had diplomatic relations since 1979. Um, we have not only not had diplomatic relations, but we've had a pretty antagonistic relationship um, that's played out in myriad ways across the region. And so um, with this most recent kind of tit-for-tat strikes, uh, starting with an Iranian strike on a U.S. airbase in Iraq, um, and then U.S. strikes against Iran, and then ultimately, and then the Iranian-backed militias um, storming the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, and then ultimately leading to the president's decision to assassinate, assassinate General Soleimani on um, January 2nd here, January 3rd in Iraq. Um, how did we end up here? And I think um, it's important to think about what Iran wants in the region and what Iran's policy and strategy are in the region. 
And for itself, what Iran primarily wants is security. This means protecting itself from outside threats, including threats from its neighbors. Um, starting shortly after the revolution, Iran fought a very long and bloody war with Iraq. Um, now, more recently, Iran sees threats in Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf countries and Israel. So protecting itself from threats emanating from its neighbors. Of course, protecting itself from the United States. Uh, I just discussed a, a long legacy of US intervention in Iran um, in some pretty extreme manners. Uh, particularly in 1953, and so Iran wants to be able to protect itself from further U.S. intervention. Um, and then finally, protection from terrorists in the region. And I think it's important to recognize that although Iran is, of course, itself a state sponsor of terrorism and has supported terrorist groups, including Hezbollah and Hamas, Iran also um, is threatened by certain terrorist entities, particularly ISIS, and has been... Um, Ally is certainly too strong a word, but its interests have aligned with the United States on certain counterterrorism issues. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yes, so. yes, exactly. Um, and so, I mean, this is what it wants. How does it go about doing that? And its, it's regional strategy is focused on ensuring security through alliances, alliances with like-minded states, um, including now the government of Iraq and the Assad regime in Syria, alliances with non-state actors um, that may be militias like the militias in Iraq. It may also be terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and um, to a lesser degree Hamas and alliances um, with, with others across the region. And its secondary goals in the region are to export the revolution and protect Shia populations across the region. So it does this by maintaining close alliances with those entities that I mentioned and Qasem Soleimani is really the person that was responsible for, um, for designing and implementing that strategy. As the head of the Quds Force, Soleimani was the one responsible for maintaining those alliances, particularly the alliances with the non-state actors, which are arguably the most important alliances that Iran has across the region, whether that's the militias in Iraq or Hezbollah. Um, and so this is, of course, how we come to a place where you could see why the reaction within Iran has been so emotional to Soleimani's death um, and to the U.S. decision to assassinate him on January 2nd. Um, so if it's OK, maybe I'll just talk about what some of the implications are. Yeah, no, no, that. that, that's great. Let's let's kind of lay that groundwork for the, for the conversation. OK, so I think... Um, there are, of course, many implications, some of which we've only begun to digest, and analysts who focus on the region have only begun to think about. Um, but I think there are five implications for the region and for U.S. interests in the region that are particularly important for us to think about, at least at the outset. Um, and the first one is potentially a positive. Um, so Soleimani's death almost certainly will not change Iran's regional strategy but it could hinder its ability to implement the strategy as effectively as it has. Um, as I mentioned, Iran's strategy is to pursue its interests in the region, to protect its security in the region through these alliances with some states, but primarily non-state actors. That will likely not change. It's hard to imagine a scenario under which that will change. Um, but Soleimani personally was very good at identifying opportunities for Iran to exploit in the region. Um, whether that was the changing conditions in Iraq after the U.S. invasion in 2003 or changing conditions in places like Syria and Yemen um, following the Arab Spring and the start of conflicts there. And we don't know whether his successor will be as effective. And so it is possible to imagine that although Iran's strategy won't change, it may not be as good at it as it has been with Soleimani at the helm. 
the rest of my implications are not going to be quite as positive for U.S. interests in the region or for the region as a whole. And I think um, the second important thing to note is that this move has almost certainly weakened anti-regime forces within Iran, at least in the short term. And I mentioned at the outset that the, um, that the Iranian revolution was not just a movement by clerics, but it was ultimately the clerical regime that came out on top. There has, since that time, been opposition to that regime in Iran. And we can see that that, um, that opposition has been growing in recent years, particularly in response to economic hardships largely brought on by international and U.S. sanctions. Um, just last November, there were massive protests in Iran over fuel price hikes and food price hikes. Um, and we've seen people really um, pushing back against the regime and ultimately being met with violence from the regime. Um, but we know this sentiment exists in Iran. Our hope in the United States is that ultimately these um, these more maybe secular-minded or more democracy-minded activists would be able to oust the regime and bring about regime change that would lead to a government that might be more willing to work with us and less destructive on the international stage. Um, but what we've seen in the wake of Soleimani's assassination is that Iranians of all stripes seem to be united in opposition to the U.S. decision to kill him and united in kind of mourning and grief for this national figure. So this weakens those anti-regime forces, at least in the short term. Um, third, the move probably reaffirms Iran's perception that it needs a nuclear weapon. Um, Iran has long viewed its nuclear program as a way to deter primarily U.S. but other foreign aggression, perceiving that if it has a nuclear weapon, um, foreign countries, particularly the United States, will be less likely to uh, want to intervene. Uh, assassinating a senior figure in the Iranian military almost certainly has reaffirmed that perception. And we saw even in the wake of the strike, Iran um, saying publicly that it would um, that it would further scale up its uh, its enrichment or further back away from its JCPOA commitments. Yeah, I'm sure that sends a pretty strong message to Cherry Kim in North Korea as well when it comes to negotiating about uh, giving up his nuclear weapons as well. First, you have the Gaddafi Libya model. Now you have this. Not a lot of motivation for him to kind of give up that one card. Yeah, and in, I think in some ways North Korea also serves as a model for Iran of, um, you know, the United States is emboldened to kill a senior general in Iran. It does not have the same approach to North Korea. Uh, what is the major different factor? North Korea has at least some nuclear capability. Uh, and so, I mean, I think um, and we could, of course, debate whether it's the right conclusion that Iran should come to, um, but I, I suspect that it is a conclusion that at least some hardliners within the Iranian government are, um, are starting to pursue. Um, and then I think, fourth, the move has certainly strengthened Iran's standing in Iraq. Um, I mentioned that Iran saw an opportunity in Iraq following the U.S. invasion and the ouster of Saddam Hussein, a longtime um, Iranian rival, and it uh, viewed this as an opportunity to forge a strong relationship with a Shia-dominated Iraqi government um, to ensure that it would never again face the type of war that it faced in the 1980s with Iraq. Um, but there have been, in recent months, um, pretty strong Shia-led, youth-led, anti-government, anti-corruption, and anti-Iranian influence in Iraq protests in Iraq. 
Um, and now with this move, um, the Iranian government almost certainly will see the need to double down in Iraq to ensure that it can maintain uh, influence and access there. Uh, and it almost certainly will be willing to crack down even more on these protests than we've already seen. And we've seen these protests already be met with violence, um, largely perpetrated by uh, Shia militias as well as the Iraqi security forces. But I think uh, we will certainly see Iran um, wanting to make sure that these protests don't gather any, any steam that could lead to a decline in its influence in Iraq. And then finally, um, the last implication that I'll talk about is an implication for American diplomacy and public diplomacy in the region. And I think, um, and you know, US officials and former US officials have been lamenting the decline of diplomacy for a few years now, but, um, but this, this point really drives home that um, there, there doesn't seem to be much appetite in the administration for any type of diplomatic solution. Um, although the president has said that he's open to renegotiating the Iran nuclear agreement, to um, having discussions with Iran, we haven't really seen any meaningful attempts at dialogue or any meaningful attempts to resolve this issue diplomatically. Um, and moreover, it seems that the options that they're considering when they consider um, you know, how best to deal with a scenario are almost entirely, if not entirely, military options. Um, and then, I, in addition to American diplomacy with Iran, I also have concerns about, um, about what this means for US public diplomacy across the region. And, and what public diplomacy is, for our listeners who may not know, is uh, engage, the US government engaging with people not governments, but people abroad, with the goal of building positive support for America and US interests in their countries. Uh, and we do this through things like people-to-people -people exchanges, um, cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, uh, business ties, and promoting, um, promoting economic opportunities for US businesses in the region. And what we're seeing right now is that um, you know, Americans, because of the very real security threats in the region, in large part because of this recent crisis with Iran, are pulling back. And so the State Department has warned US citizens to leave Iraq, um, even as we are deploying 3,500 or more US troops to the region. Um, so our military footprint is getting larger, our civilian footprint is getting smaller. And even outside of Iraq, um, I mean, it's, I'm sure, certainly the case that students who are thinking about studying abroad in countries in the region are reconsidering that, um, especially when people talk about how there may be an Iranian respo response that targets, um, you know, soft targets even outside of military or diplomatic facilities. Uh, so students pulling back, business people pulling back, and our, um, our efforts to engage the people of the region on a people-to-people -people basis are, um, are being scaled back at a time when it's arguably most important. Great. Th thank you for uh, kind of catching us up on your thoughts on the matter. Uh, Mike, uh, can you uh, talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the legal authority that, and the discussion around that that is circulating? Yeah, sure. So we can think about legal issues surrounding the Soleimani strike on two levels. One is the domestic legal basis uh, for the strike itself, and the other is the international legal basis. So let me begin with the domestic. Meaning U.S. laws. Yeah, exactly. Right. So on what authorities might the president have carried out uh, the strike against Soleimani? So the two authorities 
that currently govern the U.S. presence in the region, whether in Iraq specifically or counterterrorism more generally, are the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, which are the Authorization for the Use of Military Force. We all love that acronym. Legislation. Exactly. Exactly. We probably forgot what it stood for. (laughs) So neither of these uh, provide a sufficient basis for the drone strike against Soleimani. So let's begin with the 2001 AUMF, which was passed in the immediate aftermath of uh, 9-11 and gave uh, the U.S. authority to invade Afghanistan. So this is predicated on going after states, organizations, or people that had a direct tie to the 9-11 attacks, which is why the U.S. was able to target the Taliban, because they were uh, giving shelter to al-Qaeda, and has since you know, provided authority for the United States to conduct counterterrorism uh, operations abroad, not always against individuals and groups with a connection to al-Qaeda, but often uh, that's been the case. So that doesn't seem to be applicable here with Soleimani in particular, notwithstanding all of the kind of covert paramilitary efforts he's been overseeing that Julia just mentioned. The second possibility is a 2002 AUMF, which was the legal authority on which the U.S. has invaded Iraq and and has remained there since. And again, that doesn't seem to be applicable to Soleimani either, notwithstanding the fact that he was in Iraq. Uh, This is an Iranian senior uh, military official. So that's not applicable And just broadly, under Article 2, presidential powers, uh, the U.S. president has wide latitude to deploy the military in the self-defense of the United States, but it doesn't appear that there was any credible or imminent self-defense claim, which is a good segue uh, into the international legal basis. So when the Pentagon initially announced that it had killed Qasem Soleimani with a drone strike, it outlined three main justifications for doing so. The first is that Qasem Soleimani is a bad actor and has been responsible directly or indirectly for the deaths of thousands of Americans. And there's some truth to that, but it doesn't provide a good international legal basis Uh, because he's been doing these activities for a really long time. uh, And so it's not necessarily clear that there's an imminent uh, kind of self-defense claim. The second justification they gave was to deter Iran. And we can get into debates uh, about deterrence and academics sometimes think about the concept a little differently than policymakers. Uh, But it's not exactly clear what the administration meant, although we can speculate and certainly talk about it. The third justification, uh, which was put forward by the Pentagon and reiterated by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in the following days, was that the U.S. was preventing an imminent attack. And the language of imminence is really important because there's kind of conventional wisdom in international legal circles that you can carry out military operations abroad or violate this kind of otherwise sacred norm of non-intervention and sovereignty uh, if you are doing it in anticipatory self-defense. In other words, if I think you are about to strike me, I'm legally able to strike you first. This is different from prevention, where there's a threat that might materialize 5, 10, 20 years down the road. Uh, That doesn't have the same international legal standing as imminence. So it doesn't appear that there's a strong legal basis internationally. And it's notable as well that the Trump administration didn't file a Article 51 UN charter self-defense claim uh, with the United Nations, which is notable. And finally, this is back to the domestic uh, as well. It does seem to violate longstanding prohibitions on assassinations. Of course, killing enemy uh, combatants or other kinds of bad actors abroad doesn't always qualify as assassination. If you're in the context of a war, people you kill don't qualify as having been assassinated. But this does seem to have been a an assassination, which violates beginning with Gerald Ford and updated by Ronald Reagan and kind of observed in by subsequent administrations, 
Uh, there's a prohibition on political and military uh, assassinations by the United States. Again, this is slightly different from taking out the leaders of terrorist organizations, particularly those with connections to Al-Qaeda. But it, it's legally dubious on any kind of level. You yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to talk about the idea of decapitation and like where that seems valuable. In the wake of the al-Baghdadi, people were discussing the idea that, well, ISIS is so decentralized, to what extent does this have an effect on their ability to operate and plan and conduct attacks? And this seems to be the other way. Well, it's a proper military organization that writes things down and has TTPs and plans and SOPs and so forth. So what does taking out one general necessarily do? With the exception, of course, to what Julia brought up in terms of like that ability that he has leading the force and whether or not his uh, uh, replacement will be as effective in that role. Yeah, and there are two kind of dimensions to this. One, Julia would have way more insight into than I would, and I alluded to in her implication about what will the ramifications of Soleimani's death mean for the Quds Force and Iran's strategy in the region. The one I'll briefly mention is that there's a kind of legal and strategic, uh, legal and strategic questions at a more abstract level, right? The legal question is, you know, who is a legitimate target to be taken out by a drone strike? And the U.S. has clearly decided, and the public has largely supported uh, the idea that you can take out leaders of senior, uh, senior leaders of terrorist organizations like Al Baghdadi and Bin Laden, and this hasn't been particularly controversial. In organizations like Al-Qaeda, where it's become a little more decentralized, the strategic implications aren't always clear, but that has a, a kind of firmer legal footing. Um, you know, in this case, uh, as I said, it's already legally dubious, and it raises broader strategic questions about the role that any one individual plays at the head of an organization, and that's probably context-dependent uh, on, as you were alluding to, is it a centralized or decentralized organization? Uh, are they well-resourced? Do they have contingency plans in place and things like that? Is there a clear chain of command and so on? So it's not clear that taking them out will have uh, those strategic implications, but legally, of course, it's different from a lot of the assassination attempts, assassination activities that have gone on with leaders like Baghdadi and, and Bin Laden. Of course, that, that kind of takes us into the, the realm of kind of more, more discussion. Thank you for, for your remarks and thoughts so far. Um, let's let's kind of dig into to how this happened. Uh, Julia, you, you went through a longer timeline, but the more recent one is there was uh, an Iranian strike that killed a U.S. contractor at a base uh, in Iraq, I believe. And it, now, that did that come from Iran or did that come from a one of the uh, PMFs, the uh, the Popular Militarized Forces or, or Iranian militias? I think it came from the PMFs. Okay, yeah. uh, so the response to that was. Fairly proportional from the United States that a uh, list of um, course of action was given to the president and he selected um, certain missile strikes as well on those targets. Uh, and, and that seemed just to be one event. And then we had the uh, what I think is a, a fair um, term is the, the vandalization of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad uh, by uh, Iranian supported um for, um, like protesters or um, to what extent they were connected to a, a Hezbollah associated group as well. Um, and, and that is what was response. That was the event that triggered the decision of the course of action for taking out General Suleiman. So um, I was wondering if you have any, any kind of thoughts on that part of it before we get into the, the insider baseball questions of what, what's happening here. No, I think that's the, um, I mean, I think that's the timeline, at least in the recent 
course of events. Um, I mean, maybe the only one I would add, and I, you'll have to forgive me, people who study the Middle East always dig back into history further back than you need to go. But I think even just in the recent history, I mean, recognizing that the um, current escalation of tensions between the United States and Iran really began with the U.S. decision to withdraw from the JCPOA oh, absolutely, yes. and exert a strategy of maximum pressure on Iran, um, including increased U.S. sanctions as well as um, increased pressure on the international community to not do business with Iran. Oh, I, I definitely want to go back to the Iranian nuclear deal. I think we have a lot to discuss there. The, what I was alluding to with the insider baseball is if, if you kind of like follow some of the Twitter and some of the reports and the reports, some of this is unconfirmed, but the Suleiman strike was apparently a an extreme course of action that was maybe never meant to be actually. Confirmed. It came up again uh, when the, uh, the vandalism at the embassy in the president supposedly getting flashbacks to uh, Benghazi, and he was a very strong uh, opponent to the events that happened there and criticizing the Obama administration, and that's kind of what led to that mindset. Um, yeah, so two, two quick points on that. Yeah. One is, uh, as many people have reported, taking out Qasem Soleimani has been presented to Trump's predecessors from Bush uh, through Obama, maybe before, I'm not sure. Um, and each time those two presidents, Bush and Obama, rejected the option, viewing it as too escalatory, too provocative, and so forth. Um, not that anybody, you know, there's not a lot of loss of love for Qasem Soleimani uh, after the strike, but whether it was strategically wise is a separate question. So you're right that that was the precipitating event sequence most recently, but, but he's been on the table, so to speak, uh, before. The second thing I'll say is you are right to look at the immediate precipitating events in terms of the recent escalation. Mm -hmm. um, and as Julia mentioned, that really can be dated back, you know, four or five years, actually sooner, sorry, um, two, a year and a half, two years ago um, to the U.S. withdrawing from the JCPOA. But we'd be remiss. We're recording this on January 8th uh, in the morning. We're in the afternoon now. Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, in response to an Iranian retaliation uh, against Iraqi military bases that housed U.S. personnel in Iraq, um, which didn't kill any Americans or any Iraqis, uh, has seemingly at this moment decided to de-escalate. And this is really important because you can get in this tit-for-tat cycle, which we've seen throughout history, where, you know, the U.S. withdraws from the JCPOA, Iran takes provocative actions, ad infinitum, this goes on. Uh, and can really escalate into something and get out of hand that neither party wants. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important to note, although so far it looks to be, you know, I don't think the Soleimani strike was proportionate per se, but we could debate that. It seems to have been that they found an off-ramp out of this tit-for-tat cycle for the time being. Yeah, I, I think it seems like both the, the most recent Iranian and U.S. kind of responses to each other post the, post the assassination have meant to both find a way to, to signal strength and de-escalate at the same time, whether it's 22 missile attacks that, you know, through warning the Iraqis and whatnot have not yielded any casualties, or the U.S. saying we're going to increase sanctions, we're still not going to sign the, the nuclear deal again, but also, you know, not conduct farther attacks that would promote farther response. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like we've definitely kind of moved out of the immediate danger that uh, Twitter exploded about for the last several days. <laughs> I think that's right, yeah. And, you know, from, from all reports we've gotten so far, and this could certainly change, uh, it seems like Iran's 
counter-response to the Soleimani strike was explicitly designed to give Donald Trump an off-ramp mm-hmm. and provide them the kind of publicity they needed uh, to be seen responding to uh, attack an attack on a senior general mm-hmm. by, for example, alerting Iraq four hours before the strike happened so that U.S. personnel and Iraqi personnel could vacate uh, those premises and to avoid casualties and things like that. Um, so for now, it seems to be on a better footing than we were 24 hours ago. You can't see it, but I'm crossing my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to Julia and your comments about toolboxes in, in solving these problems. It seems like all the courses of action that were kind of presented seem to be military options. Um, there, there's comments that a lot of these come out of the, the JSOC, the, the Joint Special Operations Community, and so forth. And just, I, I want to hear your sentiments about like, why you think it is how we got to this point that that's the main response we seem to be getting out of uh this administration is well i'll i'll put a caveat it's either military responses or it's or it's sanctions sanctions is our other favorite choice and um yeah i think that's exactly right and i would say um i mean certainly we've seen that increasing in this administration but we can't levy all of the blame on this administration uh and really i mean since the since the Bush administration, U.S. posture towards the Middle East has been primarily military-driven. Um, and we did, of course, there were significant diplomatic overtures uh, with the Obama administration, particularly when it came to Iran and negotiating the JCPOA. Also, of course, significant efforts to try and negotiate an end to the Syria crisis. Um, but at the same time, um, the United States' response to uh, the reemergence of ISIS was entirely military. Uh, the United States, as Mike was mentioning earlier, continued to uh, carry out targeted drone strikes against terrorist entities throughout the region. Uh, we have lent military support to Saudi Arabia's uh, war in Yemen. So I guess I'm, I'm saying all of this to make the point that um, we have been over-relying on the military and the military options in our toolbox uh, for quite some time in the Middle East. Um, but that seems to have become even um, even worse, if you view that as a bad thing, which I personally do, even worse under this current administration, um, where there's little room for diplomacy and in in some cases, diplomacy is even sort of presented to the public, uh, whether it's by the president or or others, as as weakness, um, and viewing previous diplomatic overtures as weak, um, and and then viewing the military and presenting military options as strength. And I think what we as um, as scholars and observers of U.S. foreign policy or as future foreign policymakers, as many of our listeners and students here at Gispia are, I mean, what we should really think about is what does a an effective national security policy-making process look like and what should that look like? Um, and I think um, from my experience on the National Security Council, it is most effective when we start out with a clearly defined objective what are we trying to accomplish in Iran? What are we trying to accomplish in Iraq? What are we trying to accomplish in the region? Uh, So having a very clearly defined objective and then considering all of the tools in our foreign policy tool chest that we can use to get that objective and what individual tool or what combination of tools uh, can be the most effective. And so um, if we think about the JCPOA as an example of effective foreign policy making and that our objective was clear and well-defined. We want to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. 
Um, we started by turning to sanctions, not just sanctions levied by the U.S. U.S. had had sanctions on Iran since 1979. They haven't been particularly effective, but getting the entire international community united around sanctions um, to really squeeze Iran and bring them to the negotiating table and then enter diplomacy um, and, and coming to the bargaining table and having what, what turned out to be pretty prolonged, protracted negotiations, contentious in some ways, but uh, negotiating a settlement that would help us achieve our goal of preventing Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon. So we have this combination. And of course, all the while, we still have military tools in the background of Iran knows that we have these capabilities. Um, in this case, there were not, at least as far as I know, any overt threats that we might use them, um, but they are certainly always in our, in our toolkit as a possibility. So what concerns me about this case with Iran is that it seems like we're only turning to the military options, as you said. Um, when the um, when the Pentagon, I'm sorry, when the first strike happened on the U.S. airbase that that killed an American contractor, it was at least by the press reports the Pentagon that was turned to develop options, not the National Security Council staff. Uh, so I mean, we of course don't know. We're not in the U.S. government. We don't know what consultations took place. But from what we've at least read in the play in the press, it was uh, the Secretary of Defense that flew down to Florida to present the options. The options were drawn up by the military, um, and and then those options were considered and ultimately selected by the president. Yeah, I, I appreciate your your input on that. I, I think that's really interesting talking about how you know we've kind of come to rely on a certain set of tools, and, and maybe some of our others have have uh, atrophied more in the region. I, I think it's an interesting point to bring up how we talk about military options, but but military norms traditionally versus covert action versus counter-terrorism, counter they're, they're all really separate in terms of how we operate and what's kind of acceptable in this realm. And I, I'm kind of wondering, just thinking out loud right now, if the, the because we've spent the last two decades kind of obsessed with, with counter-terrorism in the wake of 9-11, if those solutions and those specific tools, even within the, the, the foreign policy, even within the military establishment, have been seen as either like very effective or easy or, or just the preferred thing. And is that seeping in beyond terrorism into how we just react to, to any situation? Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's a great question. To some degree, it depends how you categorize things. So you mentioned covert action. So, you, you know, I would tend to categorize things as a militarized response, which would include both, you know, over conventional forces and CIA or special forces led operations. You have your economic toolkit, which includes uh, sticks and carrots, right? Economic sanctions, economic aid and relief. You have diplomacy, um, all these, these dynamics that Julia was talking about. Um, you know, it's difficult to get out of a cycle. So I was just reading this excellent book. Uh, called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's a rural history of 9-11. And it really gives you this great picture, a very tragic picture of what it was like to experience those traumatic events uh, and how we got to, in some part, where we are today in the Middle East. And so I don't think anybody would really fault at the moment the Bush administration for initiating a military campaign in Afghanistan, at least not if you put yourself back in that mindset as where we were as a country. I think it's very difficult to break that cycle once we've gotten there and we saw the expansion of military response in Iraq, and then that has proliferated as counterterrorism operations have continued. And it's a really difficult cycle, too, because the nature of, you know, your enemy, so to speak, may 
in part dictate what response you want to pursue. So we have non-state actors, right? And you can pursue military options. It's harder maybe to pursue diplomacy with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do other kinds of diplomacy to fix the underlying structural conditions like inequality and poverty and, and opportunities to make terrorism less attractive. That's less direct. Then you have your nation-state threats, uh, which you have more circumscribed military options in that regard. The U.S., I don't see you know, getting into a conventional shooting war with Iran directly. So you might see more indirect, covert-type options, but that doesn't mean that those are the right thing to do either, right? So just because those are not you know, over-conventional army-to-army uh, engagements doesn't mean that more limited, indirect, but still militarized solutions are correct either. It could include, as Julia was saying, economic tools and diplomacy, and probably should include a lot more of that. So if you separate the kind of nation-state to nation-state dynamics, I think we could be doing a lot more on diplomacy, for sure, um, and using economic tools to bring actors to uh, the negotiating table. I think the counterterrorism problem is way thornier, in my view, um, to some degree, but it's clear that whatever we're doing really isn't working. And so we also have to figure out a strategy, as Julie was saying, with all arms of the government, to rely on whatever tool we have, not just including the military ones, to kind of work our way out of this and resolve some of the conditions making terrorism and, and terrorist activities more attractive. Yeah, I, I think I, it would be a, a totally separate podcast episode, but I think the, the proliferation of the ideas of counterterrorism and the, and the narrative and the words that we use the way that the U.S. has set that example is picked up by countries that maybe it's not quite as genuine is, is a whole other conversation that we can have considering how how uh, the CCP and, and China and Russia have used counterterrorism lingo in order to justify actions that maybe maybe it's against terrorists, maybe it's not, but it, it's definitely not in the, the spirit of the same way the United States has traditionally used them. And I, I would just add very quickly, too, you know, when you think about Iran, it's also important to think about the different stakeholders involved in the U.S. government. So the neoconservative wing, which includes uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was also in the Bush administration, actors like Bolton view Iran in this as, you know, one stepping stone to remaking the entire Middle East into a prosperous democracy. So if you view it that way, there's no alternative to regime change. We don't want to negotiate with Iran on nuclear weapons and terrorism in in the region. We want that regime gone and we want to actively work towards it, which is different from what Julia was saying, which is also my view, that it would be great to have a different regime in there, but having a healthy dose of skepticism about our ability to affect that militarily or otherwise. And that's totally separate. So some people are more willing to negotiate because they view the different players with a little more nuance. Some of the actors coming through the White House, like Bolton, view it as this kind of master plan, uh, which makes it much more attractive to think about military options and escalation than for other types of stakeholders who think about the problem differently. Yeah, it's really interesting with, with Bolton to see how like he was in and he was out, and it's only like after he's out that maybe it takes the biggest you know swing of like something that he probably was recommending for a long That's time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Although he's certainly not the only Iran hawk, so to speak, in the in the administration. And I think um, I mean Pompeo's role in all of this is obviously proving to be very critical um, and interesting that our Secretary of State, our chief diplomat, is um, has become sort of the chief uh, salesman, so to speak, from the U.S. government for uh, increased hostilities with Iran. Do, do you want to take a moment to talk about the uh, Iran nuclear deal uh, right now? Um, sure. I guess what... 
I, I mean, I mean, just uh, we, we've kind of danced around this idea of diplomacy versus toolbox, but uh, just a little bit of the since that is sort of a kickstart of the renewed hostilities with the withdrawal from that, uh, maybe, you know, we had a question in the, the earlier public panel about was it good? What, what did it really matter? Why, why we started to begin with? So it might be good to kind of refresh those ideas here on the podcast. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, I mean, I think, and I said just a minute ago, when it comes to good foreign policy making, um, you, you must start with a clear objective. And um, for the Iran nuclear deal, the objective was to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And, um, and the United States, and there are, um, there are Iran hawks in the Republican Party, there are Iran hawks in the Democratic Party, there are Iran hawks that are independents. Um, so there were certainly people who uh, were skeptical even within the Obama administration, as well as Democrats in Congress at the time. Um, but the United States made the conscious decision that we would, for the purposes of achieving our objective of preventing Iran from getting a nuclear deal, we would focus the negotiations only on Iran's nuclear pro program. Um, and so all of the other bad things that Iran does in the region and beyond, whether it's support for terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, whether it's support for militia groups that are destabilizing countries um, from Syria to Iraq to Yemen, uh, we, would, we would ignore all of that for these purposes and focus solely on the preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Um, and also made the conscious decision that we wanted to pursue a diplomatic option. Uh, and so some of our allies, particularly in the region, uh, were more interested in the United States pursuing a military option, uh, basically destroying Iran's nuclear facilities. Uh, but the administration made the decision that diplomacy was the preferred course of action here. Uh, and so we started out with behind the scenes secret negotiations directly with Iran, which took place in Oman. Um, and then when we got to a certain point in the negotiations, we were able to move them into the public sphere and also engage the Europeans, so the P5 plus one. Um, and so what ended up becoming the JCPOA was really a multinational negotiation. Um, and as I mentioned before, that, um, that really was started off bringing Iran to the table through massive international pressure through sanctions. Um, but it was a multinational negotiation to prevent Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon. Um, and so I think, um, you know, advocates of the deal will, of course, say we achieved our objective in a way that um, did not have to involve the U.S. military or any casualties. Uh, critics of the deal would say, yes, but Iran still is doing all these terrible things in the region that are against our interests. And not only that, but the deal was only, only had a 10-year time frame. Uh, and so the other major criticism of the deal was that it did not um, it did not go far enough in curtailing Iran's nuclear ambitions. That it only put a put a ten year time frame after which it presumably could have been renegotiated. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you. I, it's interesting. I think that um, the the current framework, the way we think about nuclear weapons, I, it's changing in the last several years with, with kind of the, some of these older like the enthusiasm for arms control ha has waned to say the least. Kind of globally and, and within the administration. And it's interesting that the way that people frame the Iran nuclear deal, they seem to prioritize the, these proxy wars and these other bad actor things over the danger that a nuclear Iran would present to uh, regional stability or, or global stability. 
Which I think, I mean, it dip- where you uh, where you stand is where you sit. Is that how that phrase goes? <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I think from the perspective of, um, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia or Israel or our other allies in the region, what Iran is doing in the region is really bad. It's not good for them. Um, it's not good for Israel, the extent to which Iran is um, continuing to not only shore up the Assad regime, but also the expanded presence that Iran has in Syria along Israel's border, right? Um, it's not good for Saudi Arabia that Iran has basically weakened its influence in Yemen um, and drawn it into a protracted conflict there. So it's, it's completely understandable from the perspective of some of our regional allies that they would view Iran's regional ambitions as equally dangerous, if not more dangerous, than Iran um, pursuing or even achieving a nuclear weapon. Um, I think from the perspective of U.S. interests, uh, it's it's hard to argue that, um, you know, Iran's support for Hezbollah is somehow more dangerous for us than Iran having a nuclear weapon. Um, or and, and the same goes for our other partners in the international community. Right. So and that's why when we focused it purely on the nuclear question, we were able to get broad international buy in where when we start talking about Iran's regional activities, um, I mean, in many cases, Russia is aligned with Iran on those regional priorities or if not actively supporting them or supporting the same proxies. And so um, it I think it made sense for a prioritization of our own interests in the region, in the world. Um, and also made sense from our ability to um, harness a broad international coalition. I would add very quickly um, to Julia's very excellent summary of some of the very complex dynamics that for some, it's not that Iran's bad behavior in the region outweighs uh, the threat of them getting a nuclear weapon. It's the idea that we can have our cake and eat it too. And the narrative goes something like, the Obama administration pursued a weak negotiation in which they only focused on nuclear weapons and didn't bring in all these other things. The difficulty with that is negotiations are two-sided. And so we can really have one of three worlds. I'm not saying each of these are equally feasible. They're not. One is you have a JCPOA-like agreement where Iran, the United States, and the P5 plus one, so the Security Council permanent members plus Germany, uh, agree to oversee with Iran uh, peaceful nuclear uh, enrichment, but not enrichment towards a nuclear weapon, and leave everything else off the table. So essentially a renegotiation of what we had. You could live in a world in which you put everything on the table and risk that Iran will very likely reject that kind of negotiation because it's not in their interest to do so. Uh, or you could just have you know, some military response or no negotiations whatsoever. And the gamble, I don't have any insight here, but the gamble the Obama administration made, or the bet they made, was that the first was preferable to the other two. So we would like, of course, the Obama administration almost certainly would have liked to include these other activities, but couldn't get them. And there, you know, there is some historical precedent. The United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, when they were negotiating arms control, the United States didn't say, hey, you have this informal empire across Eastern Europe where you're suppressing the democratic aspirations of all these people. I'm not going to work with you on intermediate range nuclear weapons until you give up uh, your imperial ambitions and dictatorial influence in the region. They didn't do that. They negotiated on something they thought was equally important uh, to both parties in terms of their mutual security. Uh, and they left other things off the table. So this happens all the, time, all the time. And that was done by 
you know, beloved Republicans like Ronald Reagan. Uh, these happened by these kind of arms control agreements happened under Carter uh, and Nixon. And so there's some precedent for that. And it's unlikely, in my view, that Iran would be willing to commit to this sweeping kind of negotiated settlement that Trump wants, even though we all want it. Right. And so that's that's a very in an ideal part. world, obviously. But Pre- yeah. precisely. So, so the bet was made that, that the nuclear deal was the most achievable option. That's right. And, you know, if you believe, uh, or at least Trump seems to believe in his negotiating prowess, then, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, if Trump is able to negotiate with Iran a limit, uh, a binding limit replete with inspections that they won't develop a nuclear weapon and get them to credibly commit to reducing nefarious activities in the region, that'd be great. I would wholeheartedly support that. I just think it's extraordinarily unlikely and throwing out an otherwise imperfect uh, deal, but one that moved in the right direction was a big mistake. Right. Absolutely. Uh, that's exactly. And, and you guys have kind of already gone the direction I, I wanted to go at the end of this, but it is 2020. Uh, great power competition is back in. So, so what do these events say for um, in that context? Like, what gains are, are, are China? What gains are Russia making both in the region and globally uh, with this kind of renewed, you know, these U- U.S. actions and maybe renewed focus in the region? Well, I mean, I think I can speak much more to Russia in the region than China. I think China's ambitions in the region are relatively limited to um, expanded economic opportunities. And I mean, we've certainly seen China taking an interest in the region. Um, parts of the Belt and Road Initiative touch on sort of the edges of the Middle East. Uh, but I think China's political interests in the in the region are relatively limited. Russia far more invested in the Middle East and has been um, throughout its history. Um, I mean, the the region serves as an access point to warm water point warm water ports for Russia. Uh, it has its only naval base outside of Russia is in Syria. Um, it is clearly all in in support of the Assad regime to include direct Russian military intervention in the Syria conflict. Um, and I think what we've learned over the course of the past um, decade, really, uh, you know, since the Arab Spring and the upheaval of the region is that um, that Russia is far more willing to invest there than we are. Um, and that that is not necessarily, I think, detrimental to U.S. interests. Um, I think we just need to recognize the limitations of our power, recognize the limitations of our ability to influence things in the region, and really focus on what are the areas where it matters the most to us? What are the areas that we really need to, where are the places, where are the, whether it's the specific countries or the specific parts of the region that we need to focus our efforts? Um, and so, I mean, for example, and this is um, not dealing with the current administration, but with the with the Obama administration, I mean, we saw we, of course, wanted to influence things in Syria. We wanted to see an outcome there that would lead to a government that um, that respected the Syrian people, that protected human rights, that was more democratic and open. And of course, we're not completely altruistic, all also lead to a government that is more, um, more pro-American, right, and better able to work with us. Um, but we were not and would never be as willing to engage our military directly as Russia has been. Um, and so our kind of limited efforts to intervene in that conflict through various train and equip programs that were of a pretty small scale 
um, you know, many observers of the region have argued only served to prolong the conflict um, rather than uh, rather than really lead to the result or the outcome that we want. That really hits on the the do no harm aspect of, of this. I mean, I definitely acknowledge the asymm- the asymmetry of, of interest in the region, but I mean, can we imagine a, a Middle East that's more dominated by by Russia and you know the actors that partner with it being better for human rights in the region? Not that obviously the last two decades have been super great, but like well, I mean, does it get better? <laughs> I mean, I think we should. We should also view this with humility and um, and recognize that our our strongest partner in the region, Saudi Arabia, is also one of the most aggressive violators of human rights yeah, um, in in its in its own country. Right. So um, it's not that the United States. I mean, certainly um, a core tenant of our uh, of our approach to the region has been to promote more democratic societies. Has been which we view as ultimately more stable, which will be in our interests. Um, but at the same time we back strongmen in the region and we have for, um, you know, at least as long as we've been engaged in the region um, since the end of World War II. Uh, so I, I think, I guess what I'm arguing for is that we should um, reassess what are our interests in the region and how do we most effectively achieve those interests. And often, um, and I I certainly saw this working on Egypt um, during the Obama administration, often policymakers who support a continuation of the status quo will throw up Russia and increased Russian influence as kind of a boogeyman. Um, And maybe that's bad and maybe it's not, but I think we should have an honest assessment of um, what does increased Russian influence really mean for our interests um, and where is it important for us to take a strong stand against it and where is it you know this is just a case where perhaps we should um, step away recognizing that we're never going to be willing to make the investment that they are so maybe it's just like new year new me i need to look at how i eat carbs we need to reassess our <laughs> commitment to the middle east yeah. i would never advocate for a non-carb diet but <laughs> yes <laughs> this also uh what julia was just saying about taking a step back and identifying what your real interests are hits on the kind of debate that's in vogue in international relations circles right now between what you might call retrenchment versus deep engagement. And so the retrenchment school, uh, here's the idea loosely, there's some variation there, but the idea that China is the bigger threat to the United States, but by and large, the folly of U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 and change years has been getting itself involved in conflicts that didn't have any big strategic implications for U.S. national security. And so if the U.S. can increase its security by working with Russia, whether that means allowing greater influence in the Middle East, not expanding NATO close to its borders, cooperating with them on counterterrorism, and possibly containing China, all the better. The deep engagement school, and it varies on one hand from still being prudent to, you know, all the way up through the U.S. should be remaking regimes. There's a lot of heterogeneity there also. But the bottom line for the deep engagement school is the U.S. benefits in terms of its security from being engaged in various ways around the world. That doesn't mean starting new wars uh, or endless perpetual military Again, conflict. big toolbox here we're talking right. about. Right. Yeah, right. And so, you know, this is a really important debate about where, what constitutes American national security, what is in our interests apart from inertia, right? So it's not a good answer to say we ought to be in the Middle East because we've been in the Middle East for a really long time. It's also really difficult to get people whose 
careers were staked on this or, you know, who just have been, it's all they've lived with for the last 20 years, which would include most of us, uh, to really have a deep reassessment of what's happened there. And not for nothing, it's also really difficult, understandably, to just leave the Middle East, given all of the sacrifices the American military and diplomats and uh, intelligence community has um, invested there. Right. So that's a really difficult pill to swallow. And I'm not saying we ought to do that. But Julia is absolutely right that asking the question um, kind of from scratch, what are our interests there should be first and foremost, uh, how we define priorities and not just we should continue on what, with what we're doing because we've been doing it. Yeah. And the no, other, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, uh, this is how we've always done it. It's never something you want to hear uh, of like, you know, how things should be working. And I think it's important also to keep in mind that reassessing what our interests are and how we can best advance them, it doesn't mean like pack up and go home. Um, it may mean pack up our military and bring them home. But I, I personally am always an advocate for U.S. engagement. I think it's important for us to be engaged around the world. I think we can do that in a variety of ways, right? And, and I also think that it's important and will ultimately be in our interest for the people of the region to have a voice in how they are governed, um, for their rights to be respected, for economic growth to be equitably distributed across the region, for an end to corruption. All of this is really good for the region and it's good for us. Um, but recognizing we can't make that happen by invading a country, right? We've seen, we tried that with Iraq, um, the sort of the neoconservative philosophy that if one falls, there will be a reverse, reverse domino effect across the region. We've seen that that has not worked. Um, so thinking about those may be our long-term goals. We can't make it happen ourselves, but how can we support people in the region who are trying to make it happen? And how can we do so in a way that also allows us the strategic bandwidth to focus on um, you know, what some might argue are the real or more pertinent or more um, urgent threats around the world? Yeah, I, that is a really great point to end on. You very much summed it up. A lot of food for thought here. I really want to thank Mike and Julia for, for coming on the podcast and, and taking their time today to discuss uh, these matters and these events. Uh, I'm going to take a quick moment here to, to give a little shout out to my paratroopers, brothers and sisters that deployed with the 82nd Airborne to Iraq. Uh, stay safe, you guys. 